Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Just watch me love myself That's all I want Got what I want That's all I want I'm not sorry I'm Claire Fallon And I'm Emma Gray And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about reality dating shows like The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows and we can't live without them, but we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast about women who like Thai food, feminist prose, and angry girl music of the indie rock persuasion. Wow, Claire, this is a lot to take in. I mean, I I know that you can be overwhelmed and you can be underwhelmed, but can you ever just be whelmed? I think you can in Europe. Oh, thank God. Thank you for that insight. That's right. Today, we are diving into one of our personal favorite teen rom-coms, 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, if you couldn't put it together from that intro, um, and if you could, (laughs) you're definitely our kind of people. So welcome. Before we get into the movie today, uh, we wanted to give a little reminder that our Love is Blind season four finale podcast is up on Rich Text at clareandemma.substack.com. Our reunion recap will be live soon. Any delays, we are going to go ahead and attribute to Netflix's technical failures. So be (laughs) mad at Netflix. Luckily, today we will be talking about something that is less of an abject failure than the Love is Blind alleged live reunion. And Kate Kennedy, host of the Be There in Five podcast, is here to break it down with us. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on our journey back to Padua High. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, we are so excited. We like to start off by asking our guests, what is your relationship to romantic movies in general? Oh, man. Where do I begin? I mean, I thought about this more in recent years of how I think I used pop culture as like a means of discovery for what the real world was like when I was too young to experience it firsthand. And a lot of my the seeds planted of my interests that, you know, we're more of the Bianca persuasion, if I'm honest, um, <laughs> at an early age, you know, boys, popularity, clothes, whatever. <laughs> um, I loved like kind of the clueless type, more vapid rom-coms uh, that I now see have more layers as an adult. But I think that I was just on a fact-finding mission about the world growing up in central Virginia with minimal access to like what the world was actually like. And uh, I graduated very quickly from Disney to like, 
yeah, clueless stepbrother romance. Like there was really no in between. Yeah. I think a lot of us had that experience. Like, <laughs> yeah, the Disney to teen rom-com track was straight in. Real. <laughs> and yeah, I love that you bring up Clueless because I think like 10 Things I Hate About You, it's one of those movies that like kind of smuggles the spinach of depth and complexity into this really bubblegum fun container, which is like what so much great classic literature is. Like that was Shakespeare, right? It's funny, it's accessible, it's romantic, it's easy and to that enjoy. And Austin. Yeah, also. and Austin, all of these great, these great works of literature survived in part because they're really, really fun. And they're not just, like, about forcing you to, like, process difficult thoughts. Um, So let's get into 10 Things I Had About You a little bit more. Why did you pick this movie from our shortlist? I picked this movie because um, I recently wrote a book that's a lot about pop culture. And I did a rewatch of 10 Things with a completely different agenda, um, kind of attempting to explore the character of the angry or difficult feminist. And when I rewatched it as an adult, I was like, oh, I was totally wrong. Uh, it was over <laughs> my head when I was younger. I thought I was I was kind of uh, pigeonholing Kat into like a Jesse Spano type that uh, was, you know, resistant only for uh, comedic value. And um, I was completely wrong. And And I just wanted to rewatch it again through the, not even the analytic eyes, but just appreciating it for like the amazing microcosm of 90s, the 90s teenage world. And um, I don't know, I, I think it has a lot of layers relative to other rom-coms, but also I was so deeply not interested or aware of the source material when I first saw it that I'm now very interested in it being like a Shakespearean, having Shakespearean origins. So I just thought it would be a fun one to analyze on a podcast. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like, this movie does have so many layers. And that is, I think, the mark of a great teen movie is that it can be revisited at different stages of your life and that you can find new and beautiful things that are kind of embedded in it that you maybe didn't see at first. So let's get into the background a little bit of this movie. Because 10 Things I Hate About You came out March 31st, 1999, And 1999 was a wild year for teen comedies, both romantic and, like, darker fare. We had She's All That, Drive Me Crazy, Never Been Kissed, Cruel Intentions, The Virgin Suicides, Jawbreaker, Dick, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, Varsity Blues, But I'm a Cheerleader, and Election. Wow. one year. It was bananas. I I wrote a while back at HuffPost a piece about 1999 being the year of the dark teen comedy. And one of the things that came up was that it was in response, obviously, to the 90s just being packed with teen comedies. There was like the 80s teen comedy renaissance that kind of led into a 90s fall of great teen comedies. And then they started to be parodied and satirized. And 1999 is kind of like when this all comes to a head, they make so many great teen movies this year. And then in the early aughts, they kind of just like die out and we stop seeing them in the same quality and numbers. I That 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 roster, I mean, yeah. that's crazy when you think about it. And I'm triggered because I turned 13 in 1999 and my parents follow MPAA guidelines. And the first time I told my mom I hated her was when she wouldn't <laughs> let me go see She's All That in theaters because I wasn't 13 yet. <laughs> oh my wow. God. I'm like... 
I'm like, how old did I turn in 99? I think, I think 12. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, have you guys done cheese all that? That's when I was not uh, yet. That maybe doesn't have not as yet. many layers. <laughs> maybe not. That's, That's a fun But rewatch. that is also based on a classic uh, work of literature. It's, uh, it is? My, it's My Fair Lady, right? It's Pygmalion. It's a, it's wow. a, it's a transformation. I know. Not that quite, is definitely a movie that we, that we would like, we would like to do at some point, but I think 10 things was the correct choice on your part. Yeah. Because, I, mean, <laughs> I was reading too many spark notes at the time <laughs> to know these references. <laughs> yeah. Pygmalion, I did not know about at the time. That's for sure. Um, I was definitely not the kid who was in middle school going to see these movies in theaters. I was not cool. I was much more of like, a less edgy cat than a Bianca. Um, But I think I started watching them all when I was a little older, when I was like in college, maybe. And they were still great when you're, when you're 20. I saw Drive Me Crazy in theaters like three (laughs) times. And it was the first movie that I went to at the mall with boys. And it was a big deal. (laughs) That is a huge cultural reset. Yeah, ninety nine was a was an important year for all of us, is what we're saying. Those middle school years are both traumatic and totally the years where you're looking at these movies about high school students, and you're like, "Oh, what's coming for me?" Yeah, in the real world, I'm gonna like, be just what like is... Lainey Boggs. <laughs> That's gonna be or That's Kat, gonna happen. Or Bianca. To me. Um, yeah, I was just like, it's rude that I don't have a Prada backpack. Yeah, so. but that just means you can love your Skechers even more. So exactly. in a way, it's and a I gift. did, I did, you did, I did love my Skechers. So this was also a huge moment for most of the big players involved in the movie. Julia Stiles, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Larissa Olenek were all eighteen. Heath Ledger was twenty. He like flew in from Australia to read for this movie. This was like a, a big break for all of them, like first studio movie. It was written by a writing team who had never gotten a movie made before, Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith. They went on to write a bunch of movies together, including Legally Blonde. And it was directed oh, by Gil Younger, Junger, who this was his film directorial debut, and it still is the one that he is most famous for, which is kind of rough. Wow. But Man, if you've got to if you've got to have one huge movie, this is not a bad one. Like it really, it was perfectly executed. I think so. He always has that. The movie filmed in Tacoma, Washington, in May 1998, and it changed all our lives forever. So <laughs> I think we should get in there and talk about some plot summary. As always, Claire will be our Sherpa <laughs> through. Through the depths of this <laughs> of this plot summary. So, Cameron, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is a new student at Padua High as he's being shown around the various social cliques by his appointed guide, Michael, played by David Krumholtz. It's just an absolutely pitch-perfect satire of teen movie social anatomies, I think. Like, when he's pointing out, like, the cowboys... <laughs> 
who literally are just wearing belt buckles and have lassos. That's a joke I think I didn't even pick up on when I first watched this movie. I was like, obviously no school has a clique that's just cowboys in literal cowboy boots. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> absurd. But they but they gesture at it so casually. Yeah. And then the cowboys are just sort of around vaguely in small ways for the rest of the movie. <laughs> it's brilliant. It reminded me of modern micro trends, you know, like coastal cowgirl. It's like, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's probably actually what it's like in high school right now. It's like, and here we have our Visco girls. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They have uh, the white Rastas, the future MBAs. And Michael used to be a future MBA before one of his erstwhile friends told everyone that he bought his IDSODs at an outlet mall, which is obviously (laughs) unacceptable for these Ivy League accepted students. And Cameron sees and immediately falls for Bianca, a sundress-clad sophomore with bouncy hair. But Michael quickly informs him that she's off-limits. She's not only super popular and hot, she can't date because her father is very controlling. She's not allowed to date in high school. He decides to circumvent this by volunteering to be her French tutor, even though he does not speak a single word of French. It's not really important that you can speak French when you're teaching a language. It's, you know, it's more about effort. It's more about vibes. (laughs) It's more about inviting someone to eat French food together to explore the culture, maybe Saturday <laughs> night. And at their tutoring sessions, she informs him that the rules have changed. If her older sister, Kat, who is a senior and kind of the feminist terror of the school, if she can start dating then Bianca will also be allowed. This is sort of an uh, an, an evil twist by their father, who's like, well, Kat's never going to date, probably, so maybe neither of my daughters will ever date, and I will never have to concede to them having ownership over their own sexuality. With Michael's help, Cameron pieces together a plan to foil this controlling father. They find a guy who is tough enough to go toe-to-toe with Kat, the notorious Patrick Verona, played by Heath Ledger. Michael then convinces male model and class bully Joey Donner, played by Andrew Keegan, who also wants to get with Bianca. Honestly, like, incredible <laughs> casting of Andrew Keegan. He nails it. <laughs> I couldn't believe I was seeing a Keegan-JGL collab before my eyes. I feel like they were such siloed heartthrobs that I almost would get confused with one another. <laughs> <laughs> But it was exciting to see them on screen. And playing such such different types. I mean, the two options, right? Such different types. And Bianca, <laughs> you know, is sort of this unattainable hottie. And Joey, even though he's the most popular guy in school, that ticks every box. Like, he's like, I want to challenge. I want to show everyone that I can get this unattainable girl. And Michael's like, look, to do that, you're going to need to finance paying Patrick to go out with Kat. So they're trying to use Joey's deep wallets from all the nose spray commercials he's doing to get Kat out of the way so that Cameron can date Bianca. Joey thinks that they're just like, in exchange for a little social capital, helping him form this plan to get Bianca himself. And eventually, Patrick agrees. I mean, money's money, right? But Kat, unfortunately rejects his first few attempts to ask her out. And finally, Michael and Cameron have to step in, gather some intel on Kat's interests, Thai food, feminist prose, angry girl music of the indie rock persuasion. (laughs) 
Obviously, like, every girl this era was just only reading The Bell Jar. Like, they never read anything else, I guess. <laughs> and Kat is a perfect I mean, why example. Bother? Whenever you see you know? Kat, she's reading The Bell Jar. He shows up at a concert for her favorite band, and he asks her out to Bogie Lowenstein's party. And she eventually agrees. She, she She's becoming intrigued by this persistent hot man in leather pants. And this also means Bianca can go to the party, much to their father's chagrin. So obviously she has to wear the pregnancy belly of shame in order to remember why she should not get knocked up at this party. On that beautiful note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk about what happens at Bogie Lowenstein's wine and cheese party. Can you keep up? I like Okay, so you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. <laughs> so important. I also just know myself. I, I know that planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party, can get very stressful. And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender, I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily, I can do something about that with Factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus, Keto, Vegetarian, something for every diet. Their fresh, never frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Make your whole day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. I love having a few factor meals just sitting in my fridge, especially because I work from home. It's so nice to finish up a taping and not have to figure out what to cook myself. Just look in my fridge and be like, oh, in two minutes, I can be eating mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice or tomato basil chicken risotto or Santa Fe style green chili beef skillet. And they always have a nice like vegetable side. It feels well balanced. I feel full after and it's not a headache at all. Head to factormeals.com slash LTSI50 and use code LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code LTSI50 at factormeals.com slash LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while or even not that long knows that we love article. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my home right now. Coffee tables from article. That lovely chair out on my deck. Article. Our big console. Article. I'm My bed frame. Article. This is an article household. It is. And it's, I mean, it was an inspiration to me. We finally got our first article piece of furniture recently, our new couch. And my husband and I are both constantly just like, how did we live before this couch? This is such an improvement over what we had before. It's so comfortable. It just seems to get more comfortable every day. I mean, it's the couch you dream of. And the reason that we have both been able to find ideal furniture on Article is because Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. And their team of designers are all about finding that perfect balance between style, quality, and price because we all want the best of all of those three things united in one piece of furniture, right? Plus, they're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and, you know, looks good doing it. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash LTSI, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash LTSI for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. And we are back, and they are at Bogey's party which was supposed to be a wine and cheese, yeah. but now it is a wild kegger yeah. rager. <laughs> the students are just breaking windows and all hell is breaking loose. This is supposed to be part of like Michael's motivation that he's like, I'm also exacting revenge on Bogey for telling everyone about my eyes odds by turning his wine and cheese party into a rager. So instead of Nigel showing up with the Brie, it is hundreds and hundreds of drunk high school students with kegs. <laughs> And Kat sees Bianca going off with sleazy jerkface Joey and tries to sort of intervene, is rejected. And so she just starts getting drunk. She dances on a table. It's <laughs> iconic moment. Julia Stiles. Bumping and grinding on that table with the aerial shot. I love this bit of character work that's just like, what would Kat do if she was frustrated at a party? She would take like 15 tequila shots and then she would dance on a table for sure. Apparently, she had to ask Heath Ledger about like what it's like to be drunk because Julia Stiles had barely been (laughs) drunk. And Heath was just that amount older than her that he was like, okay, this is what it's like. This is the vibe. This Loosen is what you gotta joints. do. I think she sells yeah. it. It's, a, it's an excellent performance. She hits her head on a lighting fixture. And as Patrick tends to her, he catches her in his arms. He checks to make sure she doesn't have a concussion. He holds her face. They begin to bond. They begin to, you know, connect in this caretaker, caretake sort of way and she tries to kiss him but he pulls away and Kat is furious meanwhile Bianca is at the party blowing Cam off for Joey until she realizes after spending around 25 minutes in Joey's presence that he's like extremely narcissistic and boring 
he keeps trying to make her choose between two identical modeling poses from his latest tube sock campaign. He's like, this is catalog and this is more runway. And he does two exactly identical poses. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I, I don't know. This was before Zoolander rehabilitated the image of the male model with identical modeling looks. <laughs> and so she she decides <laughs> she's done with Joey. She blows him off and gets a ride home from Cameron. Cameron is pretty pissed at her. He's like, you were never actually interested in going out with me. You convinced me that you were so that I would help get Kat out of the way. And you were just being selfish. And she is like, yeah, I guess I'm selfish, but what if I kissed you? And now all is good between Bianca and Cameron again. (laughs) I love being so hot that I just have to kiss someone and then I barely even need to apologize. They're just like, that's all I wanted. (laughs) Meanwhile, Kat remains pissed at Patrick for his rejection of her kiss after the party. So... He's like, I got to get back in there. Like, Joey's really pressuring me to keep this going so that he can keep pursuing the brass ring of Bianca's hand. And so Patrick stages a big romantic serenade with the marching band to win her back. I mean... This scene... This scene is everything. This scene is, like, seared into my brain. I mean, the moment that Heath Ledger truly arrived was this scene. This is the only excusable way to be serenaded. Like this, the acoustic guitar (laughs) privately in a room is cringy. For some reason, this was the move. Yeah, somehow this worked, even though in real life it'd probably be humiliating. Well, the the thing about it is that it's it's made up so you can just make everyone's reactions appropriate to what you need. But also, like, he is putting himself out there to be really embarrassed. Like, he is publicly embarrassing himself for her. And that's something that you don't get from the private acoustic guitar serenade. Like, you're like, no. That's true. The private serenade demands your reaction. And this is actually about him being like, I'm sorry, I'm going to do this to myself regardless of your reaction. Yeah, this is about evening the scales of embarrassment. I mean, I think that most great teen movies, one of the reasons we remember them is because they have one really iconic scene. I think in last episode, we talked about the strip basketball scene and love and basketball This is Mm. the scene in 10 Things I Hate About You that just, like, represents that movie and the cultural consciousness. Also, apparently Heath Ledger is the one who chose the song. They had, like, two different options in the original script. And Heath was like, no, those aren't good. This Frankie Valli song, like, this is the one. Is this pre-Jersey Boys? Oh, gosh. I I don't know. I feel like this was my first exposure to Frankie Valli. Yeah. (laughs) And I would later go on to be a Jersey Boys stan. <laughs> that goes back too far for me to even Yeah, remember. so Jersey Boys, 2005. Oh, yeah. Jer- yeah. Jersey Boys, the first performance was 2005. So yes, this was pre-Jersey Boys. But it's a classic, right? It's it's Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. It's it's probably it is a being classic. sung in jazz bars for, yeah. for since, since Frankie Valli wrote it. Um, but it wasn't the song they wanted. Yeah, Heath picked it, and then they did like some a little dance coaching with him so he could do all the 
the like vine steps. And I think the director or the choreographer <laughs> later said that that this was what they showed Toby McGuire when he was anxious about dancing on one of the Spider-Man movies to like convince him that it would be really cool if he just like went for it. <laughs> They're like, look at Heath. Like <laughs> Heath looks really cool. Don't you want to be like Heath? That would work for me. I love that. <laughs> and so he obviously gets detention. And Kat has been completely won over by this. She's like, okay, like he did sing Frankie Valley for me and get detention. So <laughs> obviously what I need to do is immediately get him out of detention by flashing my soccer coach, who is the proctor of detention. <laughs> There are many. <laughs> I was like, "This is extremely like, how is she not now in detention." Is what like, I don't understand. <laughs> that seems like an immediate detention. That's a good question. Yeah, they're like the coach was just too <laughs> flustered by breasts, uh, and yeah. so we're just gonna leave. It was that pre- there. yeah, it was presented as a solution. <laughs> yeah, they're like it's so easy. There are many many yeah. moments in this movie of just like wild sexual or violent misconduct that just like don't seem to have any repercussions whatsoever. Like when Kat crashes her car deliberately into Joey's like hot rod convertible, and her dad is like sort of mad about the insurance, and that's it. And I was like, um, <laughs> moves on. <laughs> so. She gets him out of detention. He sneaks out the window while she is literally showing her boobs to her teacher and soccer coach. And then they they go out for a little paddle boating on the water and end up doing some some paintball, the most romantic paintball scene, I think, in the history of cinema. <laughs> Truly. Like, I didn't realize that paintball was yeah. a romantic activity until I, I saw kind of this still movie. don't feel now like I know. it is. I've never been paintballing. I, I, uh, Neither have I. I always thought it would hurt. Yeah. Well, they're just throwing them. They're not using the paintball guns, which. Right. I think it does hurt with the guns, certainly. And I think I never want to go paintballing because <laughs> nothing will live up to this. So I prefer to imagine paintball not as yeah. it truly is, but as it is in 10 Things I Hate About You. That's a great point. This is also my Bianca side that, like, if I got paint in my hair, the date would be over. And I like watching <laughs> yeah, people right. make out covered in paint. But, like, <laughs> I, if it were me, I would be like, I, yeah, yes. no, this is great. I just really need to go home and shower this paint out of my hair because it's <laughs> stressing me out. So, <laughs> but that's Kat, so right? She doesn't care about that stuff. She's just, like... Pain in my mm-hmm. hair. That's so sexy. But then Patrick starts trying to convince Kat to go to prom with him. And we know that Kat hates the prom. Since the beginning of the movie, she has been ripping down prom posters from the walls of Padua High. She's violently anti-prom. And Patrick doesn't seem like the kind of guy to be into prom either. But he won't let it go. Of course, he needs to get her to go to prom so that Bianca can go to prom so that Joey can take Bianca to prom. And she's like, this is weird. Like, why are you pushing this? What's in it for you? And he's like, nothing's in it for me. Just the pleasure of your company. And also extra money from Joey, who really wants to get this job done. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you about that. <laughs> Kat and Bianca, meanwhile, are going through th- some things in their personal relationship. 
they have had not the easiest time of it. Their mother, it seems like, left the family and has not been in contact with them for about four, three or four years since Kat was a freshman in high school. And they've gone in really different directions since then. And obviously their father has been reacting in his own way to what's going on by like clamping down on them. But Kat and Bianca finally have a heart to heart about why Kat is so resistant to doing things to be pop that, that are popular. And Kat opens up and says, you know, I actually dated Joey freshman year and we ended up having sex after mom left and I was just not in a good place and I realized I didn't want to do it again. And I told him that we weren't going to do it again. And so he dumped me. And after that, I vowed I would never do something just because everyone else was doing it again. Bianca decides to ditch Joey and go to to prom with Cameron. Kat ultimately agrees to go with Patrick And so it seems like everything is finally working out. Like, the sisters are, like, coming together to ruin Joey's plans. Everyone's finding love. But then we get to prom and things go a little bit awry. So Joey confronts Patrick while he is with Kat and is like, I paid you all this money to take out Kat so that I could go to prom with Bianca, not that other random dweeb over there. And Kat's like, oh, nothing in it for you, really, huh? And runs out, heartbroken. Joey then punches Cameron, who is there with Bianca, and then Bianca kicks the shit out of of Joey, which is a personal highlight of the movie. (laughs) She's like, this one's for making my date bleed. This one's for my sister. This one's for me. And Joey's like, Damn, Bianca, I have a nose spray commercial tomorrow. Not anymore, he doesn't. (laughs) Sucks to suck, Joey. Uh, We love violence on this podcast, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I support violence violence against Joey. We're pro. Um, After prom, Bianca and Cameron are together, and Kat has found common ground with her overprotective father, who... Never wants to let his girls out of his sight, but he finally is like, you know what? I've maybe been a little too protective, and I know that you want to go to Sarah Lawrence for college, and it's so far away from here, but I sent in the deposit. Like, you're going to go. I want that for you. Back at school, Kat's English class has been assigned to write their own versions of William Shakespeare's sonnet 141, and there is another extremely iconic scene when Kat reads the poem with the same title as the movie. I I believe we have a little clip. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate you so much it makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate it. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact that you didn't call. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. Oh, that scene is so good. And Julia is so good. And what I learned in researching uh, this movie is that 
that scene was basically done in one shot. This was the very first take. And Julia Stiles wasn't supposed to cry. That sort of happened naturally. It was unplanned. And it just works so well. It is devastating in its impact. It's so perfectly, uncharacteristically vulnerable. Yeah, because he's he's broken her down. That sounds bad. He's broken down her defenses in this way. Like, she's opened up to him. And so <laughs> she has the capacity to have these emotional reactions to him that Kat, of the first few scenes, it didn't seem like she had. And this is so emblematic of that. Also, I, I love when that they use the first shot. And th- so they they kept in, like, she she starts reading the wrong line at one point and has to correct herself. It's so good. It's exactly what would happen so when you well. were doing this it's in front of perfect. the class. Oh, so good. And honestly, like, a good poem works with the meter. Like, I would give her an A on this assignment. Yeah. Too many, <laughs> too many people these days don't think about meter when they're, when they're writing sonnets. <laughs> I think that their English teacher would agree. I love the self-awareness of rhyming the word rhyme inside a rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I know. Artful. It's got everything. Laughs, <laughs> tears, iambic pentameter. <laughs> Patrick uh, is in the class. Of course, she is reading it to him. And he realizes that maybe there is still hope for reconciliation here. So he surprises her with a new guitar, a Fender Strat, bought with the money Joey paid him and she finds it in her car and Patrick confesses that he has fallen for her and she forgives him and they make up they kiss she and now she can start her indie girl rock band that she has dreamed of as the Lord intended (laughs) an indie girl rock band and she's heading out to Sarah Lawrence with a haughty Australian (sighs) boyfriend (laughs) yeah who hopefully will just like come along because what else is he up to and letters from Cleo plays us out with I want you to want me on the roof of the high school (laughs) that (laughs) song oh my god God, it is burned into my brain with this credit scene. I also find it wild that apparently Disney said no to the director about doing like the expensive aerial shoot from a helicopter to like that was required for that Letters from Cleo concert on the roof. And he just was like, yeah, they said yes. Uh, we're gonna still shoot it. He, <laughs> I, I completely forgot about le- letters to Cleo. Like I thought it was. I don't know if you guys were Parks and Rec fans, but there was like a subplot that Ben Wyatt yes. was like obsessed with letters to Cleo. I didn't even. It didn't even register. With, and they were in an episode of like the Pawnee right. Festival. Didn't even register with me that that was them on the roof. Yeah, they're in it a bunch of times. They're the band. Yeah, and the they prom. show up at the prom, and they're also at that the con the like concert that um yeah Kat and Patrick first connect at just like Ben Wyatt they are Cat's favorite band, so so just a little affinity between yes. those two important characters it really is an iconic cover. I can only, I mean I can only liken it to uh, Hilary Duff's cover of "The Tide Is High." Um, you know, like I, I just I love a cover of an older song from a modern pop or indie rock band. I, that was, that soundtrack was great too. Oh, 
follow bangers. Oh my god, we will get into yeah. the soundtrack. Also, it is this perfect. scene really stressed me out, but then I was like, I'm sure that it's green screen. Like, they wouldn't actually put the band up on this tiny-looking roof to play the song. And so <laughs> now I'm getting stressed out again, learning that that actually happened. And in fact, it sounds like it was terrifying. Yeah, Kay Hanley, <laughs> the lead singer Kay Hanley said to the New York Times, we were all arranged on top of this postage stamp-sized roof with chicken wire, the only thing protecting us from toppling to our deaths into the Puget Sound. The music starts playing, and we start pretending we're in a music video. We hear the whir of a chopper right above us, and then it dive bombs us. We did two takes, and it was pretty much assumed that this shot wasn't going to work, and Gil would never work in Hollywood again because he had just blown through <laughs> half a million dollars doing this shot he was forbidden to do. And it ended up being a pretty iconic scene. <laughs> so I guess all was I forgiven say, by Disney. This I was very struck by the scenery the uh, the setting, the Puget Sound, the palatial high school. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is a gorgeous high school scene that's a nice departure from kind of the typical L.A., you know, high school. I thought it was a really beautiful yeah, setting, too. Yeah, the Pacific too. Northwest is, like, very, I think, important to the entire setting yes. and vibe of the movie. Yes. But I love how you simply can't have a high school and a teen movie that doesn't look like a castle. Like, it might look like an L.A.-style castle, or it might look you know, a little bit different, like a Seattle or Tacoma style castle, but it is going to be a castle. (laughs) Like, it's not interesting to watch people fall in love at a high school that looks like the one I went to, which is just like a giant rectangle. (laughs) Unless it's like Save the Last Dance, where they're like, oh man, you're going to a real pretty high school in Chicago. Not an escapist one. And then it just, then it just looks like every high school everywhere. (laughs) I don't the the concrete bleachers are so interesting to me. Every time I watch the movie, they terrify me. I'm, I feel like concrete bleachers are not normal. Where oh, he yeah. did the routine? No, that yeah. What so high true. school has? I mean that that is like it, the the size of that stadium and field, and the 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 sturdiness of the bleachers. It's like a college stadium. That They're is like a college stadium. <laughs> it is not a high school stadium. But then they just have, they make up for it by having like every sports team doing their practice on the field at the same time. <laughs> yeah. It's like yes. the soccer team's over here. Football's over here. Cheerleaders, like band. Everyone's just practicing on the same field. They're like, we have a huge stadium, but just one. Uh, and on that note, I think we should take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll be diving a little bit more into the the background, the, the source material, and the themes of 10 Things I Hate About You. Can you keep up? I like love it. Springtime vibes are in the air. And when you bring in some of the beautiful flowers that are blooming, you probably want to smell the flowers, not the litter box. But thanks to Pretty Litter, you'll be able to smell those spring flowers all you want. Nothing beats Pretty Litter's ability to instantly trap odors. It's ultra absorbent, it's lightweight, low dust, and one six-pound bag works for up to a month. Pretty Litter's crystals change color to indicate early signs of potential illnesses in your cat. And if all of that wasn't enough, Pretty Litter ships free right to your door. You'll never run out, you won't have huge kitty litter bags taking up space, and even better, You won't have to lug those huge tubs from the store to your car or the subway and into your house. Our producer, Talon, has been using Pretty Litter and he just raves about how great it is, how easy it is to scoop, 
how much better it smells. I mean, the health monitor aspect gives so much peace of mind. He's a big fan, and we know that you will be too. Go to prettylitter.com slash LTSI to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. That's prettylitter.com slash LTSI to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. prettylitter.com slash LTSI. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Oh, I'm so happy the weather is finally turning. If you, like me, have been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune, then Quince is for you. You can build up a lineup of timeless pieces that will keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings right on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for all these staples. I mean, linen is my favorite summer fabric. They have so many amazing linen staples. I also found my new go-to, like, summer running around to the playground in the coffee shop bag. It's the pebbled Italian leather front sling bag. I can just fit a wallet and my phone and my AirPods in it, maybe some lip balm. Absolutely perfect. I'm so obsessed with it. And the price was exactly what I wanted to. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI. And we are back. And we, of course, need to talk about the source material of this movie because... Like so many great teen rom-coms, 10 Things is based on a work of classic literature that is often taught to teenagers. This one is based on William Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, it's actually pretty on the nose. It's it's not subtle. It's not subtle. <laughs> many of the names <laughs> are the same or similar, like Bianca, Katerina, Patrick Verona. Um, I think the original character is named Petruchio. And the high school's even named Padua High. Like, there are all of these very superficial references to make it clear what's going on here. They also have a lot of just general Shakespeare references in the movie. And Kat's best friend is a Shakespeare obsessive. So, yeah, they're, they want us to know. They want us to know <laughs> what they're basing this on. So, Taming of the Shrew, for those who aren't familiar, is a comedy, a uh, Shakespearean comedy about two sisters Catherine, who is very headstrong, and Bianca, who is compliant. And so Bianca is a very desirable bride, but no one really wants to marry Catherine because she seems like she would be a real nag. And their father is refusing to let Bianca marry until Catherine, the older sister, is married, seemingly as sort of an incentive to get both of his sis- both of his daughters off his hands. He's like, people will really want to marry Bianca. So they're going to figure out a way to get Catherine married, too. <laughs> so two men, Lucentio and Hortensio, 
decide to pass themselves off as tutors in order to secretly court Bianca. And meanwhile, Hortensio convinces his friend Petruchio to court Catherine in order to clear the way to his marriage. Petruchio woos Catherine by tolerating all her sharp remarks, pretending that she's actually being very sweet to him. Ultimately, she is won over and agrees to marry him. But as soon as they're married, he begins this reign of terror against her to break her spirit. He, like, makes a scene at the wedding. He carries her back to her his house against her will. He refuses her food and clothing under the pretense that nothing is good enough for her. So he's playing this sort of... Um, terrorizing version of the perfect husband who's like i just adore you so much like nothing is good enough for you so you can't have anything to eat and ultimately he breaks her will to the point that she will just agree with whatever he says because she's so confused and scared and like under his thrall and hasn't hasn't eaten eaten. (laughs) important (laughs) lucentio meanwhile has a very complicated (laughs) journey he has his servant pretend to be him in order to plead his suit to his to, to Bianca's father. He wins the dowry bidding war. Meanwhile, Lucentio has been, while in disguise as a tutor, directly courting Bianca and has kind of won her over. They've fallen in love. And there's a complex series of deceptions having to do with financial subterfuge because Lucentio doesn't actually have the money for the dowry he promised, but he needs to convince Bianca's father, that he does have the money. While that's all getting worked out, he elopes with Bianca. And when the truth comes out, her father is like, oh, well, fair enough. Uh, Congratulations on your... (laughs) You got me good on this one. So everything works out for Lucentio, who is, of course, our Cameron figure. Hortensio marries another woman. And at the end of the play, the three men, all married now, begin to argue about whose wife is the most obedient. And they each send for their wife, and the contest is whoever's wife comes most promptly is the winner. But while the other wives refuse to come when called, Catherine comes promptly because she has been abused into a shell of herself. And she then lectures the other two wives on the importance of obeying their husbands. It's truly romantic And that's where where we end. (laughs) Shakespearean comedies just aren't the barrel of giggles. I think he thought they'd be. I mean, I, I mean, the, the taming of the shoe there. is interesting because it's such a problem play for modern Shakespeare audiences. And that, I think, contributes to, like, a fascination with it. Because a lot of Shakespearean comedies do are not quite this shocking, right? Like, this is egregious. It's no. just, like, abusing a wife until she's mm-hmm. broken. And hilarity ensues. That's good, actually. <laughs> it's so deeply misogynistic without... I mean, I didn't even know a lot about what you just shared. But it it almost seems like uh, th- there isn't much of a deeper meaning there. Well, that's or is the question. Or am I missing something? It's just misogynistic. That's There's basically a lot of the debate. debate about it. And, I mean, even at the time, it was controversial. Um, some contemporaries of Shakespeare's were pretty shocked by how brutally Catherine is subjugated by her husband. And there, there is a play that was written in response, it seems, John Fletcher's The Woman's Prize or The Tamer Tamed, which reverses the roles. It shows a wife who, like, outwits her husband, gets the upper hand, and 
ends up sort of in charge of her household. And the play then ends by urging husbands not to be tyrants and it's like spouses should love each other mutually. At the same time, like, there is still a lot of debate to this day about whether Shakespeare was actually celebrating this kind of spousal abuse or whether he was, like, exposing the cruelties of, like, the patriarchal hierarchies Mm. by painting such an unsparing picture of the expected gender roles. Like, is it a critique of shrews like Catherine before, or is it a critique of domineering husbands like Petruchio? Ah, Right, you can really read it either way because it is so extreme in its events. Yeah. Yes. Like, there, there is a I, world in which I could absolutely see this being a sharp critique, like a laying bare of you think the way that you're behaving is just, like, the natural order or is ultimately kind, and I'm going to shine a mirror to that and show you, like, how brutal it is. It could really go either way. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's interesting to think of uh, 10 Things being, like, a take on that and her finding a person, it's like she was able to be in touch with her vulnerabilities because somebody accepted her, not subverted her. Yeah, it's a really different approach to the taming, right? It's it's completely different. And so I think that, like, the two readings of Taming of the Shrew makes it sort of interesting to look at how it was adapted because, like, the most obvious reading of Taming of the Shrew, I still think, is that that it's a, a comedy, that the happy ending is the gender hierarchy is restored, the rebellious woman is controlled, the importance of female obedience is affirmed. Like, comedies typically end with a happy ending, and so aren't we meant to read the ending right. as happy? Um, and so this is a very straightforward thing for something like Taming of the Shrew to sort of edit or subvert by... Like you said, like, instead of her being subjugated, she is accepted and therefore is able to enter into this, like, mutual loving relationship. And so the the only part of their courtship that's really the same is the very beginning part when Patrick, like, pretends to find her nasty comments pleasant. But then everything that follows is about them opening up to each other, about who they really are and accepting each other. And instead of her being tame, she just, right. like... The, the setup. Be, be, is loved and, like, is therefore able to give love. Yeah, the setup is is the one thing that is kind of true to the source material and everything else feels like a response to it in a lot of ways rather mm. than, like, a retelling. Yeah. And then the idea is, like, well, she still is who she is. She's just not having to constantly, like, lash out cruelly in order to establish that she is a strong woman who's living her own life it's just accepted that she's a strong woman who is living her own life. So she doesn't have to like constantly be nasty to other people to signal that she has like more of a, of a confidence in herself. I also feel like that's why it was so important for them to include not just the happy ending of Kat and Patrick, but the happy ending of Kat and her father and him supporting her going to Sarah Lawrence. Like, there is this idea that, yes, she's going to get the guy. She's going to get this relationship. And also, she has this whole, like, rich life laid out in in front of her with all of these other opportunities of, like, learning and exploration. Yeah. Yeah, the father was way more guilty of doing the traditional taming. Yeah. No, the father father Mm -hmm. character is 
fascinating because while at the time of Taming of the Shrews, you know, com- composition, it was accepted that fathers were sort of in charge of their daughter's sexuality and their their courtship and their marriages. And they have to come up with like a reason for the the father, a father in 1999 to behave this way with his daughters. <laughs> and they come up with basically he's an OBGYN who it seems like exclusively works with pregnant teenage patients who made bad choices. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And he's like, I'm constantly up to my elbows in placenta because people don't listen to their fathers. And I'm like, is that really the majority of your practice? (laughs) Watching watching it back, I thought they went out of their way to uh, make a mockery of the adults more so than the teens. The the fascination that the adults have with teen sexuality his obsession with, like, the unruly female sexuality that they're going to go, like, get pregnant and, like, ruin his life. And then also, like, a character like Miss Perky, the guidance counselor, who is, like, mining her students for, like, terms and ideas for her raunchy, like, romance novel that she's <laughs> writing. That, like, they're the ones you who are really, like, writing crazed. about bratwursts, Claire? <laughs> I feel like uh, 10 Things is Tumescent is uh, clueless sporadically. Yeah. Like, just yes. the one lar- big multi-syllabic word also you learn from a rom-com. undulating. <laughs> undulating. But yeah. I did really learn what Tumescent meant from this movie, I think. So, that was Me very too. educational. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's absolutely true. The the adults are, are the greatest figures of fun in this because they... They have so much power over the, the the teenagers, but they're really just driven by their own neuroses and their own, like, sexual hang-ups. And her father is, I think, a really well-executed character because it's so clear that although the anxieties he's espousing were actually are actually very common among people who, like, teach sex ed to kids, I experienced very similar sort of lectures from my sex ed education, and from parents, this, like, constant, like, hysteria of, like, oh, my God, they're having rainbow parties. Like, they're soaking. Like, I don't know what the kids are doing these days. Um, just sort of exposing that as as not, like, this sort of benevolent, rational, caretaking impulse, but as this fear response that's based in their own, like, sort of lurid imaginations. And that's why I think that character holds up so well. Yeah, and I think that they did such a great job casting it, like, not putting, not casting someone who's a particularly, like, threatening or even authoritative figure. I think you're right, Kate. Like, they do sort of defang the adult characters by making them a little bit ridiculous at every turn. And that's, I think, the only way that they could have, could have created this father figure that, who is exerting this, like, almost this completely ridiculous level of control over his daughters and not make it read as just weirdly abusive. Totally. And and I think it's very of its time with the, I mean, millennials were very uniquely exposed to abstinence-only sex education by way of public policy from 93 to 2008. I was going to say that Clinton <laughs> era. <laughs> yeah. No and I, I think it captures, and in other, I mean, you're in the Pacific Northwest and otherwise progressive atmosphere. There's not, there are no religious or biblical patriarchal undertones, yet there's an extreme panic about 
abstinence, chastity, pregnancy, and it's the way that those characters are being spoken to is precisely the way most of us were spoken to in the American public school system at that time. Absolutely. And I I mean, in the Catholic school system too, I got to tell you, but it was much more religious. It was much more (laughs) religious in tone, but but the the fear quotient was similar. Oh, they were more chill? Yeah, yeah, I always thought Catholic school would be so much more open about it. I think that that you're pointing to something which is very specific here. And, And also it made me think of Mean Girls, which is like the medicalized medicalization of what is ultimately this sort of religious and puritanical fear of sexuality, which is like, don't have sex. Oh my God, please don't have sex because of pregnancy. And that is the only reason and death, and, death and, and chlamydia. <laughs> and death. And yeah. <laughs> and of course, it's like those are all very real risks. There are also mitigation measures you can take. There's there's like a calm, level-headed way to talk about this. And instead, it's this clearly sort of like back lizard brain fueled like fear of of girls like choosing to have sex and like adults who just can't handle that idea. Um, <laughs> and I think that that is one of the most like the most overt displays of this, but there are throughout these themes of, of like gendered violence and control that are, you know, they're framed in comedic ways. It's, it's the controlling father, but it's also like cat being willing to knee guys in the balls. And it's like, because they were trying to grope her in the lunch line. Like she also has this trauma of Joey dumping her for not wanting to have sex anymore, which to me almost felt like they were doing a bit of a PG gloss on like a sexual assault story. Sexual assault. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I think the way that it still like sort of embedded itself in the back of my mind was with that messaging. Like even though it's not a sexual assault story technically, I think that is how it landed and always kind of how I thought about it. Me too. Like he pressured her before she was ready. Right. It's kind of the way I PG yeah. process. But yes. she never says that. Like when I rewatched it, I was surprised that what she says is more like, I made this decision for the wrong reasons, right? Like I was upset about mom leaving. I wasn't really thinking it through. I was just sort of acting out. And what he did was dump her for not wanting to do it again. And yeah, it's still the same sort of story, right? It's just a much less, like, graphic way of talking about the issue of teenage boys, like, pressuring or coercing sex out of their partners. And so there is this, like, constant theme running through of, like, Kat and Bianca dealing with these men who who want things from their bodies and who are trying in their different ways to navigate those threats like do i do i try to gain social capital and like enjoy what that can get for me that men want these things for my body do i try to you know charm my way into having as much power from it as possible or do i like try to throw up so many barriers that i'll be protected yeah cat and bianca really do present these like two pathways that are presented to young women like in a totally imperfect and often violent and often scary world. It's like either use your sexuality in a way that will get you some things that you want, hopefully, hopefully, and you might be in danger, but hopefully you'll get something out of the bargain or, yeah, rail against it in a way that closes yourself off to perhaps that danger, but also 
to so many other things that could be good. And and I think that, that what that sort of t- tells young women is like, the system is fucked and there's no perfect way for you to be navigating it. And I, I was pleased watching back to see that both Bianca and Kat are sympathetic characters. They're so different, but they both ultimately read as complete people, even if we're kind of like more with Kat on this journey. Um, Bianca is still a character that I think is like given respect and weight. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely a more Bianca forward when I was younger. And I, I maybe I just love Larissa Olenek's, you know, body of work oh. from Dawn Babysitter's Club and Alex <laughs> Mack and Mack. Oh my God. She really, she, she was so important. But I, um, like I, I had a whole, I could deep dive just the sister dynamic because like, it's very mm-hmm. Daria Quinn. Mm-hmm. Um, and my sister and I had posters for Daria and Quinn and I was always the Quinn and she was the Daria. <laughs> and it is interesting how now I see it as like, the world wants you to believe that based on your surface level interests or how intellectual they are, one person is more or less of a feminist or an independent individual. Ultimately, they come together by both not really caring and reacting in response to what other people think of them. And I think that's supposed to be the more empowering message. But its I was kind of like, so is Bianca wrong for following what she's been told to do, mm-hmm. to gain social capital, to be in everyone's favor, to be popular. Like, it's kind of, I don't know, there are a lot of ways you can look at it that I think Bianca is kind of um, independent in her own yeah. right. I agree. And I, I think that's kind of what I was getting at is that, like, in a sense, where when they reach common ground, they realize that neither of them is completely wrong and neither of them is completely right. And they are just trying both to do their best and, like, survive through these really difficult years dealing with family trauma and and being just a young woman kind of trying to find herself in the world, navigating friendships yeah. and romantic paramours and, you know, all of these challenges that kind of are thrown your way when you're that age. Yeah. And there are layers of, like, there's your natural inclinations and then everybody also has a layer of performance. Like, right. They can be fundamentally different and like their different things, but like it is funny that Kat sits in front of her window and reads the <laughs> bell jar with giant text. Like she wants people yeah. to know that about her. So she's not entirely void of caring what people think. She actually wants people to be quite aware of her rebellion. Yeah. Right. She's reacting. Her and and that is that is why her love story works and is so compelling. Because what Patrick does is that he is able to see through the pieces of her that are performance and appreciate the pieces of her that that aren't. Yeah. And she is able to then sort of even There's out. There's a way a in which bit. Patrick is like the only character that Kat really encounters who is male and doesn't treat her as something to be controlled or have like mm-hmm. violence enacted on her in some way that he like he's he has this great reputation for violence at the beginning, like, oh, he lit a state trooper on fire or whatever. No big deal. But <laughs> he is like so gentle and respectful of her, at least with her physical boundaries, that he's able to create that space for her to not signal something, to not be like throwing up like a middle finger to keep someone from getting close enough to hurt her. Like he cares for her when she's drunk at the party. He refuses to kiss her because she's too drunk. Like, Joey 
is framed as sort of taking advantage of her emotional distress when she, when they were younger to sleep with her. And Patrick goes out of his way not to take advantage of her. And that, that like opens up this space for her to be a truer version of herself. Like she thinks she's being truly herself, but yeah, she is like performing her true self really hard to keep people, <laughs> to keep people on their toes. She doesn't have to do that with Patrick because he's just going to be respectful of who she really is. And that's why we just are all in love with Patrick Verona forever. He's our favorite. That's why it's such a good yeah. love story. That's why it works. I also admit that that when I first saw it, um, I think I identified with both Kat and Bianca in different ways. And I was like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is so cute and non-threatening. And I was really into that love story too. And apparently Julia Stiles actually <laughs> dated Joseph Gordon-Levitt. On the like when oh really I mean they were the yeah, same they, age they like they they got involved <laughs> I think uh, according to to the director I think mentioned this in one of the oral histories that we read um, he was like she is always marching to the beat of her own drummer like we thought Heath was going to be everyone's heartthrob but she went right for Joseph Gordon Levitt I mean yeah that would be me too. but. Uh, <laughs> I have such a soft spot for three named '90s male heartthrobs. <laughs> they all had three names. Like JTT. Every single, every single boy on Home Improvement had three names: Zachary Ty Bryan, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Tara Noah Smith. And it, it, it's like I, some market researcher somewhere decided that that was how to get like get you directly to the J14 <laughs> cover. I was always so intrigued three by the three names. Namers. Is yeah. a must put you right on the cover. <laughs> all of the girls will put their posters. And J- JTT was the like, I mean, he was He's the ever, moment. Yeah, Andrew Keegan up in, before that had been in Seventh Heaven, right? He was like I the teen dad. Any of these things? Yeah, so I, I, oh, I, I wasn't I, sure if this was his breakthrough or not. Uh, let me see what I'm going to fact check this in real time because <laughs> he was a bit older. He was a bit older than the rest right. of them, and so was Gabrielle Union, who plays, um, who plays Bianca's Chastity. best friend, Chastity. Uh, yeah, when was he in? I wasn't sure who, like, got a breakout, uh, situation from this movie. He was but in it really Seventh made me Heaven from 97 to 2002. So, yeah, okay. he had been... It was kind of his heyday. And, and before this, he had also been in, like, Sabrina, Boy Meets World, Moesha, mm. Full House, like, Step by Step. He wow. had done a lot of TV. <laughs> but I think that this was, this was really his, his breakout movie. Got it. Okay. Let's um, contextualize. JGL really is the cutest. So no, cute. I hate. And Bernard from the Santa Claus. <laughs> In real life, I would have very much gone for um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but there's something about like the safeness of a, a, a movie character that I can be like, oh my gosh, Patrick Rona, absolutely. In real life, I would have been scared to speak to him. Um, but, you know, in movies, it's all fantasy. Oh, yeah. Um, I wanted to talk also about Michael. We haven't talked much about Michael's arc, but he ends up, I guess, falling for pursuing Mandela, Julia's best friend who is obsessed with Shakespeare. He, like, invites her to prom with a Shakespearean-era gown, and he meets her on the dance floor dressed <laughs> as William Shakespeare. Um, but the thing that's still most striking to me about Michael is his, like, out-of-control incel vibes. Like, the first scene with Cameron, mm. when Cameron sees Bianca... He gives a speech right out of, like, a Reddit forum. And just a beautiful oh, yeah. reminder <laughs> that time is a flat circle and that 
incel <laughs> shit is not new and it's not going to go anytime soon. I think I have uh, written here so a selection of his speech. He calls Bianca a snotty little princess wearing a strategically planned sundress to make guys like us realize we can never touch her and guys like Joey realize they want to. She, my friend, is what we will spend the rest of our lives not having. Put her in your spank bank and move on. Yikes. Oh my Big God. Fucking yes. yikes. Michael, you're a goddamn creep. If he creep. had called them Stacy's and Chad's, wow. I would have thought that they literally went back and edited this movie <laughs> based on Reddit trends. <laughs> like, <gasps> it makes me ragey how there's this uh, narrative of her being like, vapid and airheaded yet wow you put give her a lot of credit with her calculation and master manipulation to put on that sundress yeah. and make guys want yeah. her but not well, be that, able to touch that's her the it's the whole like... <laughs> thing right like you are both yeah. trying to tempt me very very intentionally you are this evil mastermind and also you're not even good enough for me because you're actually a snotty little idiot with no brain. Yeah, it's like the only intellect that a that a woman can have in this worldview is just sort of the animal cunning to attract male attention through their physical presentation, right? It's not right. it's not the kind of elevated intellect of an Ivy accepted MBA, future MBA of America like Michael. Yeah, that's some outlet mall shit. He deserved what he <laughs> yeah. got. But I love yeah. that this movie, like, it, it Michael is, in a way, a, a sympathetic character, and he does ultimately get a happy ending. But we see the ways that Bianca is is not seen for who she really is, and that she is sort of victimized. And, and this little speech is part of it, and we get to see a deeper part of her, yeah. rather than her being kept in that pigeonhole throughout the movie. I did want to talk a little bit about what it means to kind of flip the dynamic of tame of taming of the shrew in this adaptation if taming of the shrew is supposed to be read as exposing the cruelty of male power over women through this exaggerated depiction because then we have to question like does 10 things i hate about you like defang that commentary and even ultimately like romanticize problematic male courtship behavior to women. I mean, ultimately, 10 Things I Hate About You is a teen romantic comedy. Rom-coms tend to hew to certain, like, well-tread tropes. And as we know, a lot of those tropes romanticize behavior that in real life we would find objectionable. You know, things like stalking <laughs> and not, not listening to women when they reject yeah. you. Um, Not taking no for an answer, <laughs> engaging in big public yeah. romantic gestures to convince women to change their minds, lying about your motivations in a relationship, getting angry when your romantic interest isn't reciprocated. Like, these are all kind of classic rom-com tropes that we recognize increasingly are not healthy behaviors in real-life courtship that are on display in this. And I guess, like, I went back and forth on whether it's possible that by turning this into a movie that you can actually see as quite romantic and beautiful, it kind of takes this this very sharp critique of, of male dominance and gives it sort of a beautiful gloss that makes it 
sneakily appealing. Am I overreading this? I'm I'm open to being convinced. I think the thing that saves this movie is that we get to see multiple tracks for men, right? Like we do have a character like Joey who is very boldly and clearly trying to control the women around him, use the women around him and um yeah, subjugate the women that he encounters for his own devices. And what is ultimately romantic about Patrick is that, yes, while there is some manipulation <laughs> that I think is is not, you know, really, he doesn't really face any long-lasting consequences for what would be like a pretty deep and disturbing betrayal. Um, the emotional core of the movie is about them reaching this place of mutual understanding and respect and about Kat ultimately getting to live her life in a way that like is true to herself and true to her dreams, both in a romantic sense, but also as we pointed to before in like an academic sense and in uh, the sense of having, you know, an honest relationship with her sister and her father. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's all, I, it's almost like the, I don't know what it's trying to do, but I do know that it makes a big difference that the writers were female and which was very mm-hmm. unusual for a teen rom-com at the time. And a lot of the one-note tropey characters were written from the POV of a man like um I keep wanting to call him Bernard because of the same Michael. Um like men like Michael who were, you know, doing screenwriting, right? About write women in response to how they perceive them. And this was women giving a nuanced take to like multiple different issues and ultimately like sending the message that like, I, I kind of appreciated that it, the message wasn't like, Kat doesn't need a man. It's not anti-feminist to want to be loved, to want to be in a partnership. But the important thing is not, um, you know, stripping her of her livelihood and making her obedient, but accepting her. And I think that the bigger message was like, that's what's truly romantic. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I just thought from the female gaze, it was a really interesting approach to the tale. And they just explored layers of the female characters in ways that movies at the time weren't Mm -hmm. doing and didn't explore characters like um, Andrew Keegan's, which like didn't really deserve to be explored. I don't need to know his journey. You just need to know that he has many, like, tube sock campaigns (laughs) on the horizon. And that's all the depth that we really require. And the writing team, I think, uh, later has has talked about the making of this script. And it was a suggestion from a friend that they tried to adapt Taming of the Shrew that that they were really— um, that really resonated with them. And the original suggestion was, we'll try flipping the genders. And they tried it, and they were like, you know— no, it really needs to be done this way. And I think that that is smart because it does allow you to grapple with the real, like, entrenched gender expectations and roles in a way that flipping it really wouldn't do. And I think that sometimes gender-flipped adaptations of of things that are really about gender roles and hierarchies kind of stumble on that front because it's like, well, what are we really talking about them. We're talking about like, a fantasy world that this doesn't exist. <laughs> and this way they can, right. in, a modern, in an updated way, like really address the expectations of female behavior and like male courtship. Ultimately, I think it it works, but it's interesting to me to think about like the different angles of what it means to update this extremely like problematic play. 
Oh, no, I, I'm not sure if you were going to get to this, but I've re- the most striking thing to me as an adult was the, um, a slash funny that I didn't pick up on before was the scene with Kat and her mm. English teacher. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. She gets called out on her lack of intersectionality in 1999. Yes, yes. And, um... That is something that I did not pick up on when I was watching when I was younger. But I loved the self-awareness of her imperfect white feminism. And I loved the teacher's, like, you know, suburban, upper-middle-class oppression. I was just like, oh, this is this is so self-aware. Like, they, I don't know. I, I appreciated that part and didn't notice yeah. it before. I love the character Mr. of Mr. Morgan. And just, he's a Black man, a young Black man, teaching at a school that is overwhelmingly white. And you can just read the annoyance he has with (laughs) all of these kids, like every single one of them. He's like, you're lecturing me about, like, as a rich white woman, this guy is just a total douche. These people over there are appropriating Black culture. Like, what the fuck am I doing here? No one is is doing what they think they (laughs) are. None of these kids are really, really doing what they think they're doing. Yeah, Mr. Morgan is is a great (laughs) inclusion. And... Yeah, one thing that that they also talk about, uh, the writers, is that maybe if they wrote it today, Kat would have more of a a wider worldview that she clearly, she has this very, like, 90s feminism that is so much about, like, performing feminine and and being focused on her own sort of uh, opportunities and lack thereof. Personal, 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 personal political. That, but yeah, but that, right. that she is called out for in the movie. Uh, ex- excellent point because his character is small but very important to to the movie. Also, just a a real thing when you are young and you are having these political awakenings and you start becoming like extremely didactic <laughs> in this very narrow yeah. way because you're like, I yes. discovered this real world thing and it's crazy and everyone needs to know about it and like I love that kind of puncturing of her because that's that's just real uh, I that is that is the way in which I really identified as a cat I was not like cool or edgy or tough but I was like a bitch like I would I loved fighting with people (laughs) about feminism and turning class discussions into an opportunity to like get on my soapbox and I love that Kat is both embraced for that and also like held to account for it um because you gotta grow up from that stage of (laughs) of handling things at some point um but let's talk about one of the one of the other important elements of this movie which is also embedded here which is that Kat is like an alt girl. She is like riot girl derived. She is grunge. She's edgy. And she's placed in opposition to like the bubblegum pop cool kid scene at her high school. And it's, I mean, a lot of teenage movies, uh, teen rom-coms are about at least one outsider to the scene. But I think that 10 Things I Hate About You is unusual because it's about two outsiders and they are the main characters and they fall in love and they don't assimilate into the mainstream culture by the end. Another one of the things that just really works well about this movie is that, yeah, neither character has to go through some big physical transformation. And we've talked about in in our rom-com recaps before 
the place that like a makeover scene can hold and the significance <laughs> of it. And it can be done really well and deployed in in ways that feel very um, key and important to the plot. But there is also something quite refreshing about seeing a female character go on this incredible arc and not have to undergo that. And like both Bianca and Kat start and end this movie as themselves. They've just learned things about themselves and learned things about how to move through the world. And like, what's more romantic than that? Right. Like the writers think that they, you know, modern Kat would have been more, you know, politically engaged and at protest. But I'm like, for somebody like me who just grabbed onto the, you know, pea coattails of anything to be more socially accepted, like, uh, to me, the greatest protest is her not being so consumed with her own likability. Um, and uh, ultimately, with the fight scene at the end, I think, is Larissa mm-hmm. Olenek doing the same. And um, that, for somebody that cared so much what people think and that wasn't very alternative at all, that, to me, is, like, such an important big message that I probably needed to see, be seeing more of mm-hmm. at the time as opposed to, yeah, take off your glasses and take out your ponytail and better assimilate yeah. into the popular crowd. That's so true. She, like, burns up solution. her social capital <laughs> by repeatedly punching the coolest guy in school at the at the end and then becomes, like, the girlfriend of some, like, dorky yeah. transfer student who came in halfway through senior year. Yeah. <laughs> but she still is who she is. Like, then she isn't then, like, oh, now I don't wear butterfly clips in my hair because I just did that to be popular. Like, she likes the way she is, but she recognizes that she doesn't have to make every choice around what's going to get her more social capital and more popularity. Right. She she doesn't have to cow to to people who don't serve her or engage in behaviors that that feel bad and wrong and untrue to who she is. But she also, yeah, doesn't have to become the, the world's biggest yeah. bikini kill fan. It's okay. Like she can yeah. just bikini kill. And I actually appreciate the sketchers. representation of like a a woman, a girl who is not like the hot popular girl going to prom without a makeover. Like she just like throws on a dress. She puts her hair up. Yes. She runs out to prom. It's like not a big deal. She looks great, but like, it's not like a transformation. It's just like, this is Kat in a prom dress and that's all it needs to be. Right. She's very much going to prom as herself. She definitely put her hair up, (laughs) but it's not a makeover scene, you know? (laughs) Oh my god. That yeah. was such a good 90s up to. You're right. They didn't make a spectacle about it. She wasn't like presented to the room. Exactly. She just yeah, kind of dressed up without raging against it or making it a scene. She didn't get like a full a full beat, you know. She didn't like come out with like, "Oh my god, cat, when you put on just like a right. giant cat eye eyeliner, then like you look so hot all of a sudden." It still just like looks but yes, we all did get that updo, right? We all got that yeah, updo in, in high her school. We don't have her curly hair all straightened. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, also at my yeah. bat mitzvah, I had basically that yeah. updo. It was just it was Oh yeah, no. That I was what you did in that updo. <laughs> the curl pile. Yeah. And I had short hair, but they they had ways. They were like, "We will make a pile of curls for you come hell or high water." <laughs> That's what this is all about. <laughs> I was trying, I was trying, I thought that um, Kat's dress was very uh, Jessica McClintock core prom 90s. Uh, yes. Uh, Bianca's tutu number was like kind of Carrie Bradshaw ahead of its time. I don't remember people wearing two piece numbers like it that. Was at very, that time. I mean, I, 
I wouldn't know because know, we she, literally were not allowed to wear two-piece dresses at my high school. It was banned. Oh, oh God, Catholic school. We used to have an all-school assembly to show us what kinds of outfits were not allowed. Just in case you'd show midriff? school dances. <laughs> and two-pieces were among wow. them. <laughs> well, I was... I was just truly a Jessica McClintock girly, like, to the core. <laughs> I mean, they both, I, I think maybe there is, there is, uh, like, it's, it's, it's a nuance that I can't really tell because I'm not that familiar with what you might wear if you had a looser dress code restriction. But, like, is that a, is that a stylistic rebellion in itself that, that she's doing the sort of edgy two-piece look? Or was that, like, a popular girl thing to wear in 1999? I don't know. I think it was fashion forward. I think mm-hmm. cat's yeah. look was way but, safer. But, like, Bianca likes fashion. Um, I'm just curious. What did you wear to prom? <laughs> like, uh, were cowl necks off? Like, was that too slutty? Like, what was the vibe? Straps. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I wore, I would wear, like, a simple, no like, spaghetti strap. Like, straight, straight across, like, tank top style dress, usually. Like, it was. And, and I think I wore a strapless dress once. But no midriff. No, like, super plunging cleavage necklines no like showing the booty like it couldn't be too short and of course we had to leave room for baby jesus while we were dancing obviously <laughs> obviously obviously As you yeah do. there was no that's grinding wild. uh by it but yeah no i think that's exactly the point though is that cat like doesn't care about but she's like she's not gonna wear a an a, an interesting prom outfit because she doesn't care enough about prom to be interesting she's just like Sure. Let's throw this on. And maybe Bianca just is someone who loves choosing the perfect strategically selected sundress. But that doesn't mean that she's that she's not an interesting person with with valid desires. And so I I love that they take this like culture clash. It's sort of like the 90s grunge versus like the impending millennial like Barbie pink uh you know, bouncy hair aesthetic. And they don't, they don't reconcile them by having two people from opposing sides fall in love. They reconcile them through like these two women, recognizing that both of their forms of being girls and being women are valid in each other. And and it's so much more satisfying than seeing like Adrian <laughs> Grenier in Drive Me Crazy be forced to like <laughs> slick back his hair. And put on, like, a weirdly, I don't know, like, unedgy leather jacket. Like, it's, this this works because, yeah, they're two distinct characters who get to maintain the things that they like aesthetically. And both of those cultures, also in 1999, were completely intermingling. Yeah. I feel like for, it was, bit, I mean, I don't know if this was a common experience, but we watched Grease nonstop at sleepovers. And in retrospect, that really is a crazy message of, like, abandon your personality, wear all black, develop nicotine habit, then the guy will like you at the end. Oh, my God. And, ev- and that that's that was kind of like a—that wasn't even a makeover scene. That was just, like, a fundamentally change-who-you-are vibe that I took so seriously. <laughs> I know. What's so interesting about that movie, because we covered—we also did a deep dive on Grease— and that, oh, I have to listen. that scene was actually a very specific satire of a very specific trope of movie from the 1950s in which a lower class man was absorbed 
into the aesthetics and behaviors of an upper-class refined woman. And so Greece was actually meant to be like a, a satire on that of flipping the script <laughs> where, yeah, and, and very specific no class idea. commentary on on <laughs> within Chicago. Yeah, very interesting. And a lot of that was lost in, you know, it being a period piece that then, yeah, we didn't have the context anymore as children of the 90s. But I just like love telling people that now because I found it so fascinating in the way that it really changed the way I read yeah. that ending. It really goes to show the, I mean, uh, the importance of age appropriateness when you're watching these, because I really took them at face value uh, for the tropes, for what makes you successful and popular, for what makes boys like you. I just, and then if you don't revisit them as an adult, they're just kind of buried in your brain that way, which is why this podcast is <laughs> an important, so important. concept. We're, we're, we're doing this for the people. Um, <laughs> I really think are. we wanted to get into uh, a little bit of some of the the nittier grittier components that make this movie so perfect and so irresistible. We've talked about the cast throughout, and one thing I just wanted to note about the cast <laughs> is that they were they were truly like discovered by this movie, and that wasn't what the studio wanted. Like we were very close to having a Ten Things I Hate About You starring the cast of Dawson's Creek. I think that it was in a HuffPost oral history with our colleague Lee Blickley that Gil uh, Younger, the director, basically said he really pushed to cast unknowns. The studio was like, these Dawson's Creek kids, they're really blowing up. Like, we should maybe get them. And he was like, it's really important to me to cast people that the audience will have no preconceptions about. And they were like, okay, like, if you insist. And that is... Can you imagine like the like this movie with <laughs> James Vanderbeek instead of Heath Ledger? Oh my no. god, no. I mean, Heath Ledger is just so perfect in this role, so swoony, so soft in all the right ways. He is an actor that had such incredible range, and I think so much of that is on display in this teen movie. Julia Stiles also is yeah. just perfect. She has the right amount of vulnerability, the right amount of edge, like no one else. And, no one else. That they means are is that he got to kind of cast people that he felt were the roles. Like they were typecast. Like he's like, Heath is yeah. like a lot like what you see from Patrick Verona, like his charm <laughs> and his humor and his warmth. Like there's so much of Heath in that character. And Julia, too. Like, they met Julia, and he was like, oh, she just, like, is Cat. Like, there's this authenticity to her. She's very serious-minded and not, like, the teen actress, the, the teen, like, star actresses that we would have been looking at. There was, there was this weight to her that Cat was supposed to have. And so you end up with this cast that, like, they're really gifted, and they go on to do so many other things. But these characters kind of touch on a deep part of them. And it's interesting because a lot of them did read for a variety of roles. Like Larissa Olnick read for both Kat and Bianca. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt read for Cameron, but also for Michael, <laughs> the Michael character, who David Krumholtz. Like they were all sort of being shuffled around. Uh, but I think that clearly the director had had the right idea about who kind of belonged where because all the performances are so iconic. I mean, even the supporting characters in this movie are 
like Gabrielle Union yes. as Chastity, mm-hmm. Susan May Pratt as Mandela, like both of them feel like such important mainstays of teen movies in this era, even though both of them were a little bit older than um, Julia Stiles and Larissa and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but they are just so iconic. Allison Janney, unbelievable in this role. It's just like perfect comedy. Allison Janney and so Larry good. Miller as as the uh, father, the, oh. the con- controlling father, brings so much. Oh my God. Also known, importantly, as Paolo <laughs> in Princess Diaries and Mr. Hollister oh in Pretty Woman. Like this man, this man just shows up in rom-coms. All over the place. Yeah. Wow. He's Paolo. Yeah. I that did not that just blew my mind. Um, wow. Yeah. And I I think it, there was something. I, I mean I don't know if this is only in my head, but when Julia Stiles went from ten things to save the last dance, in my head she was like a technical dancer from the hypnotized dance on the counter, <laughs> like the island scene. Like apparently she, that's thought, why she got it, the role. It, she oh okay because yes. when I was watching her dance before she hit her head I was I remember thinking she looked so cool that was the vibe, and I, that was like such an iconic scene, um, and it seemed like a natural transition for her to go yeah so, to save the last dance yeah. she was obviously a dancer apparently <laughs> they tried to get a choreographer for that scene and she was like no 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 like I can dance I got this like I'm gonna do it and then someone saw that performance and that is what led them to believe that she had the dancing chops to do Save the Last Dance because she was, I Yeah, she had taken ballet, ballet. For, for years. It's funny because uh, at the time, I think for a lot of like white viewers, like, like you know, like 14-year-old me, for example, her dancing in Save the Last Dance was really convincing. And then... um you start to realize <laughs> upon rewatch, upon rewatch. Like she was not very good at hip hop <laughs> dancing at all. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> and actually, it was probably pretty embarrassing. Um, but I think that at the time, I'm sure a lot of white executives like looked at that and were like, oh, this girl's got it. Like she can dance hip hop without breaking a sweat. <laughs> she can do that choreography. Yeah, she literally. She told the New York Times, I would never have the guts to do that scene now. I'm glad somebody got that on film. I mean, I love dancing, but sort of provocatively on the table, I was pretty guileless at that point. I've also heard that's what got me the part in Save the Last Dance. Oh, my God. I'd also, like, it it makes me think of how you really are kind of guileless when you're 18 and drunk and, like, uh, the, the dance moves that I pulled while standing on tables in college that you could not pay me enough money to do in public pay now. Me. No. That is the vibe of that no. scene, and that's why it, it works. <laughs> it almost doesn't matter if she's good at it. She's just like... So true. She's young and drunk. She's selling yeah. it. It's believable. Uh, we've also talked a little bit about Letters to Cleo, but this whole soundtrack is just like 1999 in a bottle. Oh, my God. And... So good. Oh, it's so <sighs> good. It's it so just puts good. you back there. Oh my god! And I love it because it has um, like iconic artists, but like songs that aren't the biggest hits. Like it has mm-hmm. Sister Hazel, "Your Winter," "Not All for You," or like Semi Sonic has "Closing Time." But this is FNT. It's kind of some of these forgotten pockets of non-singles that score the time beautifully that aren't very top of mind zeitgeist wise. 
And I just think it's a any soundtrack that has the cardigans in the late '90s is a win. A la yes, Romeo and, and Juliet. It, it does. It makes it feel less, yeah, dated in a weird way, while at the same time precisely yeah. evoking its era. Like instead of being like, "Oh yeah, we all wanted all for you back then," you just are hearing the sound of the era in this very authentic way. I think that's a really good point. Yes. One of my favorite scenes is when Cameron and Michael are like exacting revenge on Bogie Lowenstein by distributing those doctored party flyers and they drop them <laughs> down the spiral <laughs> yeah. staircase of the school and the shot is just from from below and you're seeing these papers trickle down and Air's sexy <laughs> boy comes on and it's just like so moody and perfect. And forever, if I ever hear that song, I'm like, ah, yes, it's it's bogey yeah. party time. It's also funny that the administration had lost control of that school to such a degree where you could just make it <laughs> rain with beer party. Free beer. Posters. It just says free beer in giant letters. And they're like, Who e- no need to be subtle. No need to hide, to like pass this in an origami note. Yeah. Just again, throw it adults down the excessively domineering and completely powerless in this movie. They're like, you will never touch a boy until you are 40. And also, you just flashed a teacher in school and we don't know what to do about it. So we're just going to pretend it didn't happen. And like, yeah, beer flyers yes. seems like a, a someone else's <laughs> problem. <laughs> like, Miss Perky's busy writing her romance novel. I also, I think that I love the use of music as a device for... Uh, explaining their personalities or like how Cat is alternative. Mm-hmm. Like even the one of the opening scenes is like a group of girls in a convertible yes. listening to Bare Naked Ladies and then she pulls up and yeah. eclipses Reputation. it with her non-top yeah. 40 music. No, that, yeah. that was one of the, the moments when they do go with like the singles, but it's so effective because, yeah, the, the, we open with one week. That's like the first shot of the movie. And, and of course... <laughs> and then... Right to Joan Jett's <laughs> yeah. bad reputation. But they set the tone for what the whole conflict is about. It's like this song that was like a smash hit and the girls who are just like listening to what's popular and like having fun in the sun and mm-hmm. literally the thesis statement of I don't give a damn about my reputation juxtaposed with it. It it lays out the whole thesis of the movie it's so for good. you. And I think there's something about music in your adolescence, or at least for me, um, it, the the type of music you listen to in like high school can become your whole personality. Yes, in a way that you use it to. I would use it to get male attention. I would use it to so people would think I was cool and in the know. You want people to know you're not like other girls, like kind of that pocket in time where we were like you know pirating music, making burn CDs, and uh, developing our taste. Yeah via music, I think, is an interesting way we were trying to carve out our uniqueness. No, I completely agree, Kate. I think that's such a good point. And something that was occurring to me is, like, I am have never been, like, a cool music person, but a lot of my core memories of music in the era, era are triggered by movie scenes. Like, something will come on in the car, and I'll be like, oh, that scene from Save the Last Dance or, oh, that moment in 10 Things I Hate About You, like, that is also my cultural touchstone for those, yeah, yeah, those big, big cultural moments and also just, like, my understanding of who I was in the late 90s and early Yeah, it's almost like little music videos. Like that that FMT montage of them doing doing paintball. Like, that is that song to me. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. Uh, exactly. I want to talk a little bit uh, before we before we start wrapping up about what this movie does for teen girls because it's such a an, a complicated time for for young women and like teenage years are are really rough for everyone, right? Like you start your body's changing, your personality's changing, you're seeking independence and teenagers can be really rebellious, they can be emotionally volatile, they can be sarcastic and rude. And it can be particularly tricky for girls because there are higher expectations on girls to not be any of those things and to be compliant and demure. And there's often a lot of like friction with their parents and with authority figures when they stop being like this perfect little girl. And I actually like hear this a lot now that I am a parent that's like, oh, you'll be glad you have boys when they're teenagers. Like people I know with teenage girls, it's like so difficult and that messaging is really strong that teenage girls are just, like, worse in this way. And I think growing up as a teenage girl, like, you feel that, right? Like, you know that by trying to be more independent and by trying to explore your boundaries that you're letting people down in this very <laughs> profound way. And what I love about this movie is that it, like, puts that in a character. It, like, puts that in cat. Like, all these ways that you, like, let down the people around you by like trying to be your authentic self as a teenage girl. And it's like, but it's okay. Like you can still be seen and loved and accepted. And like, you don't have to just experience this as a time when you're just disappointing people and not being enough for them. It's the ultimate happy ending because it is about young women who get to grow and change and remain so fundamentally themselves. And they get to find happiness as a result of that journey, not as a result of, yeah, transforming themselves to fit an authority figure's idea of who they should be or a romantic partner's idea of who they should be. And that's a really, really powerful thing to see when you're like in middle school, trying to imagine what your young adult life and then adult yeah. life might look like as a woman. And you're starting to bump up against all of the the limitations of of the the gender roles that we adhere to as a culture. It really also kind of explores the tension of um like uh Bianca was for example was guilty of so many things by simply existing. Her Dad, it was certain she was going to get pregnant. The Michael was certain she was, you know, a master manipulator who wanted men to not be able to touch her but to pine after her. Like, she, by just, like, being herself, you see, like, a young woman who is up against... It, it has nothing to do with how she looks out at the world. It's that she's being looked at and what everyone thinks of her when they look at her. And the teenage girls aren't given enough credit for having to adjust to that constant tension of their... I don't know, identity being way more about what other people think of them than who they actually are. And it's very hard to find that identity while navigating that. And um, I don't know, I just think it's interesting to see examples of young people who are both given, you know, the onus for supposedly controlling how people perceive them, but that while also being completely controlled by the people around them. And it's like, how would you find your sense of self? That's so true. It really is like Kat is the teenage girl who who 
becomes difficult and Bianca is is the other like kind she she continues mm-hmm. to try to please and present herself as very uh demure and feminine and yet they both are still subject as you said to this to assumptions about who they are and what they should be and what's wrong with them and they're being diagnosed and they're being blamed for things just for being themselves and so we like this whole movie is just about exploring every side of that for girls as they grow up and all of the ways that it's difficult for them to find genuine love and acceptance and then they find it and it's so it's such a fairy tale ending that they both get to have that instead of conforming to something in order it to be is. given it. And they both get to and be they find looked it by at being, with total yeah. adoration without that becoming the full center of who they are. And the sisters find it by being a little bit more like each other. Yes. Which I think is kind of a beautiful message of like, they they both could fall into extremities to caricatures of their archetype, but I loved Bianca's anger being kind of like her Saving ending grace. moment and Kat's vulnerabilities and yeah. softness and acceptance. I just, it was a great sister story too. Although ironically, I think the most romantic line in this movie and maybe most movies I've ever seen is kind of a put down of Bianca when Patrick looks deep into Kat's eyes and says, I know everyone digs your sister, but she's without. I mean, oh my gosh, yes. Heath just sells that line. And it is, there is a wish fulfillment element here for, especially for girls who felt like they could never be the Bianca yeah. or the chastity. You know, that they were, that they, and this desire to be to be seen and to be looked at and to be desired um, in a way that I think often is not culturally afforded to young women who don't conform to like very conventional beauty standards. And so to see that, like, oh. Yeah, and while it's a bit of a put down of Bianca, like it's a put down from a specific person. Like all you need is one person who, who... thinks you're better than your sister. I see Like, that doesn't mean that she just is better than her sister, but it's important (laughs) that he sees her as more desirable than Bianca. And that's what she needs to hear. And isn't that what we all Someone who thinks we're better than our sister. Yeah, in an intimate partnership. (laughs) Someone who thinks we're better than our sister, but someone who just, who sees us and is like, yes, you're what I want. You're the hottest thing I've ever seen. Your specificity is what makes you so perfect and so wonderful for me. And that is what Kat gets. And that's also what Bianca gets. Um, And I just... I love it and I love this movie and I, it's, you know, as all of these movies are, they aren't, you know, it's not perfect, but it is, it's so good. Yeah. Kate, before we finish, do you have any final thoughts you want to bring up? Anything we didn't touch on that is really important to you about the movie? No, I learned a lot from this discussion. I didn't have a lot of um, understanding of the source material and that makes it all the more interesting but I watching it back like so often I'm doing a rewatch and I'm eye rolling and cringing about the messaging that must have been embedded in my head and rewatching this I'm like this is a film I'd show my kids Mm -hmm. like it it really has a timelessness to it in a way that perhaps is Shakespearean where (laughs) you know the 
the times change, but we haven't been able to transcend a lot of elements of gender roles. And I think there are a lot of really important messages that are very well executed in this movie. As long as you're old enough to laugh, like uh, see that the problematic parts are done that way, almost on purpose. Um, and I just, yeah, this was a great rewatch for me. I, I genuinely loved it. I was ready to snark on it more, but ultimately, yeah, this is one came of the short. few. I know that's so so <laughs> yeah, often yeah, happens like, oh to my us. God, this actually <laughs> held up incredibly well. It's still romantic. It's still smart, and yeah, because it is. I think just about young people figuring out who they are, falling in love. Like these are things that never go away, and neither really do gender roles. Um, but what we do actually see that I think is really cool is the conversation that was being had about things that are now sort of more accepted, like that you can, you can be any kind of woman and, and still be worthy of desire and respect and also be a feminist and be empowered. And that was something that was still being like negotiated at this point in history. And so even though in a way it's a little dated, it still feels very true and resonant. And it's just so good. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. This was truly such a treat. And can you tell everyone listening where they can find you and your work and pre-order your book? Because I am very excited to read it. Yes. I talk about 10 Things I Hate About You in the book. Um, It's called One in a Millennial. It doesn't come out till January of 2024, but it's about the female millennial zeitgeist and kind of similarly re-examining a lot of my pop cultural influences. And uh, you can pre-order that if you go to BeThereIn5.com and click books. My podcast is called Be There in 5. And you can find me on Instagram at Kate Kennedy. Thank you so much. We encourage everyone to go check all that out in your book. I can't wait to read. It sounds extremely up my alley. So looking forward to that one. Thank you again for joining us today. (laughs) And now it is time for our rating out of 10 strategically selected sundresses. Listen, there's nothing wrong with selecting a sundress strategically. It's one of my hobbies and I support it. Um, For me, honestly, this is a 10 out of 10. (laughs) I I, I'm probably blowing my load too early, but like I... It's so good. It's so good. It's so funny. It's so so smart. It's It's so so romantic. It's so romantic. I'm trying to think of a flaw that uh, it would really, that would bring it down a half point or two. And I'm struggling, but I'm going to, I'm going to say that for me, it's a, it's a 9.5 because I don't want to blow my load. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there might be a better movie out there. I haven't rewatched them there all yet. There might be, but you know what? Maybe I just will have multiple 10 out of 10s and it's just sue me for having a deep emotional attachment like, to like basically all of the movies that we're covering in this series. I'm like, I'm taking off half a point because I got vertigo during that closing shot when Letters to Cleo is on the roof. <laughs> I that's a half point. love that closing shot. I just love every piece of it. And I, I get truly truly depressed about the loss of Heath Ledger every time I watch this movie. And you're just like, so much talent in this movie, so much romance, so much great representation of a cultural moment that, that was very formative to the two of us. I just... I love this movie and I'm so grateful that we had Kate on to discuss it with us because I think it was absolutely just perfect. Yeah, I could talk about this movie for days. uh, 9.5 to 10 out of 10. I mean, that's that's... (laughs) 
the creme de la creme. This is one of the best teen rom-coms ever made and in our humble opinion. And on that note, that's it for Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks so much to our guest, Kate Kennedy. Love to See It is produced by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Talon Stradley. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. If you like the show, please follow us, rate us five stars, leave a review. And of course, tell all of your friends about our show. Maybe get up on the concrete bleachers and sing a whole song about it. Whatever gets the word out. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Emily D. Rose. And I'm at Claire E. Fallon. We'll be back next week with our rom-com rewatch spring break edition, Easy A. Stitcher. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.